Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Thriller Crypto. Today, we are talking to SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, telling everybody that crypto is the money of the internet. Then we have Bitcoin Lightning Network nodes hits a record 10,000 wallets. That's what's up. And then finally, in the main topic, we're going inside protocol, Chainlink. That's right. It's heavily requested. Let's get it. Thriller Crypto starting now. Gentlemen, boys and girls from around the world, my name is Car Car Gonzalez. Today is September 26, 2019. Hope everybody's doing well on this fine Thursday evening. I'm looking forward to this weekend. It's going to be lovely. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and jump into the news. First up, we have Unilever. That's right. They have a pilot program with IBM, and it's reportedly yielding positive results. Now, this came out of the campaign report, but the consumer goods giant has been working with IBM on a blockchain project to help the firm save money on ad reconciliation. The process to confirm ad contracts have been delivered. According to Louis D. Como, the recent program has shown evidence that it's an area in which Unilever can save money. He goes on to say, this is not going for the latest shiny toy. We're going through rules and our own principles to build trust again and having full transparency across all of our operations with IBM blockchain. Wow. Sounds lovely. <laughs> Let's get in the next piece of news. And our favorite SEC commissioner that is not Jay Clayton, because that guy sucks. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He, well, he kind of does suck. Hester Peirce says digital assets could one day be the money of the Internet. That's right. At a cryptocurrency compliance summit in New York hosted by Solidus Labs today, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce Crypto Mom spoke about the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's views on cryptocurrency and how the U.S. can improve the process for new regulations and how the SEC enforces crypto fraud. She goes on to say store value. That's right. I think it's really important function. I do think that we'll see as technology changes that they become much more the money of the Internet. She went on to say that when I came to the SEC, one of my hopes was to help change the way it addresses innovation. In my first round, I saw it was slow. I think about how we need to apply our enforcement resources and also go about how we chase fraud. Now, these cases against people who have done offerings and didn't register it. The question is where in the spectrum you fall and how much we should spend on different parts of the spectrum, she concluded. Yeah, I think out of all the commissioners on the SEC board, I feel like she's the most like composed and actually understands this space more so than anybody else. Um, I feel like Commissioner Jackson has done some research, but as far as our chairman Clayton, oh man, just listen to uh, yesterday's episode. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was bad this week at the uh, U.S. House of Representatives. And in some really good news, it looks like the number of cryptocurrency wallets is growing 
exponentially. That's right. It's a sharp increase of new wallets in Q2 of 2019. Now, this data is provided by Statistica. They continuously track multiple indicators in the crypto space, and the platform revealed that the number of blockchain wallet users has reached over 40 million at the end of first half of 2019. That represents an enormous increase from less than 8 million users in the second quarter of 2016. As per the report, the numbers look even more staggering when you realize that the study is based on growth registered by a single company. Guess the company. That's right, blockchain.com. But uh, yeah, that looks amazing, this statistical report. And you can see the spikes. It's, uh, yeah, it, I mean, just looking at how much the space has evolved over the past three to five years, even since 2017 or 2016, it's, it's unbelievable. And then we also hit a number of Bitcoin Lightning Network nodes as it hits 10,000. That's right, the Lightning Network is the flagship cryptocurrency's second layer scaling solution, which enables faster and cheaper transactions in the Bitcoin network, hence its growing reputation as a solution to the Bitcoin scalability problem. The nodes are the computers, if you didn't know that, but the Lightning Network has seen an increase by 3.1% to hit 10,000 today. The greater the number of nodes on the network means the more efficiently transactions can be sent. So let's hope we keep seeing that increase. That's pretty bullish. And finally, in our last piece of news, we have Venezuela's central bank is exploring the addition of Bitcoin and Ether to its reserves. What, what, what? <laughs> yeah, the central bank of Venezuela is running internal tests to determine whether it can add cryptocurrencies, specifically Bitcoin and Ethereum, to its international reserves. And this is according to a report by Bloomberg. Yeah, not a bad time to get some Bitcoin and Ethereum right now, especially with the markets the way they are. Good hedging, Venezuela. Okay, with that, let's get into interesting video of the day. Thriller podcast. Interesting crypto video of the day. So let me pose a question to you. How scared were you when you saw the price of Bitcoin fall from 10K to 8K? Were you really, really scared? Were you kind of scared? Or were you like, nah, this is nothing. I remember when Bitcoin used to fall five grand. <laughs> well, if you're like me, you're wondering, eh, big deal. But a lot of other people out there are shaking in their boots, their moon boots, that is. And that's why Coindesk has created a video where they talk to people involved in the space about where Bitcoin is going and why it dropped to 8K. Here's David Nage talking to Coindesk about that. Well, I think there's a few factors. I think there's probably three factors that are drawing most of the concern right now. The CME had expiry today. And so as we relate at ARCA, we are all practitioners from Wall Street and from the institutional management side. We, we know that when we have expiry, markets change. And so as you would expect on triple witching on a Friday in the equity markets, when you have options expiring, when you have dividends going X, things change, prices go down, there's usually compression. And so we expect that to also happen with Bitcoin. Additionally, I think what's happening right now is that we've been range bound in Bitcoin for the last, roughly the last month or so, beginning since around mid-August uh, or so. And so with- And, and ra range bound in what range? Would we've been around 10,007 to around 9,700, <laughs> okay. uh, give or take. And I think what we've seen right now is that there's been a lack of catalyst, either upwards or downwards, to push it forward or push it downwards. Mm -hmm. Backed, which just launched this past week, right. was supposed to be a major catalyst pushing the markets up. 
but the reception to that has been tepid. And I think also with that being tepid, we have to be very you know, cautious about that. It's not supposed to happen overnight, mm -hmm. where BACT is supposed to bring us to 20,000, 100,000 in Bitcoin price. It is a piece of institutional infrastructure that is key going forward and that we need to give it time. And so, again, I think the market has been waiting for these stories to happen. Just, just to stop there on BACT. Tell us, why was that a big deal? What, what, why was that such a heavily anticipated? Well, it acts as, an, as a clearinghouse, and it is a physical uh, operation. So instead of CME, where you get uh, fiat for your Bitcoin, there's actual physical delivery of Bitcoin uh, with, with BACT. And so it is an institutional quality platform, NYC ICE backed it. Um, effectively, it raised about $182 million at a very large valuation. You had family offices and institutional investors investing in it. It is an institutional platform like Fidelity and BitGo and some of the other ones we've seen, Gemini also. It is a piece of key infrastructure that allows for the clearinghouse of Bitcoin, which is important going forward as we see more money potentially coming into the system. Mm -hmm. And I mean, where do you see that back to going? I mean, I know a lot of people are trying to figure out if that's going to be successful in the long term, what, what, what's your view? I think right now what we have to see is that Bitcoin, from our standpoint, within digital assets and within the crypto ecosphere, we believe it to be a store of value. We believe it to be censorship resistant. We believe that there's a lot of merit to it. Outside of our box, institutional investors that manage trillions of dollars don't understand that value. They see it as a speculative asset where you buy and hopefully it accretes and they make money from it. They don't see it as that store value yet. And so once that narrative becomes clearer, and we're starting to see, especially in the equity markets, going back to that again, managers who are managing trillions of dollars, there was an amazing story from Business Insider. They have been interviewing CIOs from Nuveen to State Street that have been saying effectively that the equity markets, their day is over. We've had a 10-year bull run. No longer can they guarantee that there's going to be excess returns there. Fixed income has also had massive compression. We're seeing potential negative yields being discussed here in the country. And so where do you go? You know, as the story goes and the song goes, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And so effectively right now, we're trying to figure out where that is. And so those managers, once they start to understand the dynamics of Bitcoin and the characteristics of Bitcoin, I think there could be a, a chance that that happens if you look at probabilities. But if we're looking, you know, three weeks, three months, you know, a year down the road, it's going to take time. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I always try to preach to other family offices and other institutional investors. This is going to take time. However, Bitcoin has been around for 10 years. So we've had, we've seen it become more of a steady product. We've seen infrastructure being built around it. But again, it's going to take time. Mm -hmm. Well, now what about this, this pullback on prices? Is that going to prompt anybody to get out of this market or is there value? Should people be getting in? I mean, like, like, how do you think about that price, especially for an asset class that is, you know, in relative terms, as young as this one? Right. Well, obviously, I'm not going to give investment advice, so everyone can obviously do their own research. But effectively, you know, going back to the days of traditional markets, if you believe that Amazon or you believe that Netflix, Netflix has had a massive capitulation in price the last few weeks. If you believe those are companies of the future, that they're going to add value in your portfolio and you see them going down, you see that as a price, you see that as an opportunity to buy. And so with Bitcoin, you know, with there potentially being a drop, yeah, obviously people can think of it as a potential to buy. Again, you have to do your own research and you have to come up with a reason why you want to buy it. If it's for pure speculation, 
Obviously, that could play out. If you believe it's a asset that is a diversifier in your portfolio that you don't have access to right now, and we've seen it be uncorrelated, we've seen it be asymmetric to the public markets, that's another reason why you want to take a look at it. Price drops, obviously, you know, everyone talks about it. Again, we're not really too focused on the price. We're focused more on what the technology is doing. And so I think there's a play for everyone to take a look at. Mm -hmm. And I mean, do you have any thoughts on where prices might go over the rest of this year or, or, or even maybe a longer term? We're not in the business of speculating um, and we're not in the business of price predictions. There are those in the market that do that. I don't necessarily agree with them. I believe we don't really have the KPIs and the data to really come up with those kind of forecasts yet. However, what we do know is supply and demand at classical economics. As of right now, Bitcoin has a hard cap of 21 million. As of right now, I believe we've mined about 18 and a half million. And we're about to go through a systematic operation in about five and a half months called a halvening in which the supply is going to be cut in half. And so if, if supply continues to get cut in half and demand continues to rise, classical economics shows that price accretes. And so that is one of the only things that we can necessarily look at in terms of probabilistic determinations. Okay. Um, now, a question is, there's a lot of money being put into this space mm -hmm. by venture capital firms and trying to build, I think the term you used was infrastructure mm -hmm. for this market. And you know, why, why, are, why are they doing that? Well, right now what you're seeing, I spoke to a family office recently and he asked me point blank, my principal wants me to put in half a million, a million dollars into Bitcoin. What do I do? Completely out of the dark, doesn't know what to do. And we went through the steps. One, he could either do it self-sovereign and he could go get a Trezor or a Ledger and do it himself, go to Coinbase and do that. Then he could either go to Fidelity or some of the other places that are more institutional and go to those and actually purchase and have them do cold storage. Or he could go to a fund manager. Right now, for large sums of money to come into the market, this physical infrastructure is needed for them to feel comfortable. They are used to having their assets custodied. They're used to having that custodial uh, be there so they could obviously help with you know, uh, anything that has to do with their P&L, having to transfer assets, having to make sure those assets are safe, and having to make sure that those assets are in a place that cannot be necessarily stolen. And so right now that infrastructure, yes, we've started to see that with Fidelity, we've started to see that with BitGo, we've started to see that with Gemini and Anchorage, um, but that infrastructure is really key for them to feel comfortable right now what we're seeing is family offices and institutional investors dip in their toes with maybe half a million, a million dollars here and there. There is activity, I'm confident of that, there is activity amongst institutional investors dipping their toes into Bitcoin and other digital assets. However, when you actually want to go knee deep or you want to go waist deep into this world, they need to have places that can, they can store their assets securely and where they feel confident in. And that has been something that is still, to this day, held them back. However, again, with Fidelity and other places that are starting to build that infrastructure, that story should change soon. Yeah, he actually dropped some unique bombs there. I appreciate it, David. And uh, he has his own podcast. You should definitely check it out. It's called Base Layer. Search for it on iTunes or Google Play. It's, he has some pretty cool, uh, interesting insights for sure. Um, I think most people in this space right now are just not realizing like I say this nicely. Come on, car, be nice. Um, they're just not zooming out, bro. I mean, that's that's all it is. I mean, if you really, really understand cryptocurrency and understand Bitcoin and understand the fundamentals, 
and the true decentralized nature of it all. Like if you understand the space completely and you see all angles, then then you understand that by zooming out, you can understand where we're going. And right now, like I've been saying for the longest time, this is just the accumulation stage. I mean, that's all it is. I mean, we're going through this little kind of dip here, but 8K, <laughs> like, gosh, that's nothing. <laughs> that's, a, that's hardly, a, that's hardly a, a dip in a nacho cheese bowl. Seriously, like, 8K is nothing. And we're gonna talk all about it here in Coin Talk. So, get ready. Let's do it. Coin Talk, starting now. time for coin talk but before we jump into that i just gotta make a couple announcements that's right so as you know i i work full-time here in austin texas as a system administrator and uh yeah just you know doing the whole network thing and stuff i have a couple tests i have to take here at the end of october so we're probably not gonna do a thriller crypto on the week of october 21st which is coming up here in about uh, one, two, three, f- three weeks, I believe. Three weeks, yeah. So the week of October 21st, you'll probably see no Thriller Crypto. I'm so sorry. Uh, I just got to study for that test. I've been studying right now, but um, I got to like really study. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's anybody out there in the uh, in the IT space, but uh, when it comes to taking these exams, you really have to like um, hammer home <laughs> some core concepts and stuff like this most of the stuff i already know it it's just it's just testing that's all it is they just want their money and they want you to have these certificates anyways it doesn't matter it's part of my job but i do want to say though that uh yeah so we won't have any thriller crypto or thriller news on that week we will have our subscription shows still as well too i probably will have to shoot those uh, earlier um yeah than i would like but i mean it is what it is, unfortunately. Got to pay the bills. But uh, we'll be back. We'll be back on the 30th. Yeah, on the 30th um, of... Actually, is it going to be the 30th? No, we'll be back on the 29th, October 29th. So we'll be gone from the 21st to the 29th just here on Thriller News and Thriller Crypto. And then if you're on our subscription, we'll probably record those episodes like three or four days earlier than we usually would do. Um Maybe I'll try to maybe I'll try to make some episodes that week that are a little bit more like you can you can listen to them at any point. Uh, they're not so much like based on an exact date or anything. But yeah, that's what was going to be going on that week. But I just want to give you all everybody a heads up. Um, I think that's it. That's all I got. Oh, oh, oh I should also mention we're going to be releasing because after I get that done, <laughs> I plan on getting finished our audiobook for Bitcoin and having that hopefully before Thanksgiving. So. That's going to be full steam ahead into that. Um, So just trying to balance everything. It's kind of tough. But I will say, sign up for a newsletter. If you're signed up to our newsletter, you're going to get access to that audiobook. It's going to be free of charge. I'm not going to charge for that. Um, At some point, we'll flip the switch, and that'll only be for people who are subscribed. And then if you want to join our newsletter, you can. I mean, it's like 7 bucks a month. And, And then on top of that, you'll be supporting the show, 
which is also cool, right? And then finally, um, you'll get access to more Thriller Crypto during the week. Yeah, so it's a win-win for everybody. Okay, now we gotta play our disclaimer. And if you don't know what our disclaimer is, this helps us because right after the disclaimer, this is where I talk about all things crypto and where it's going and what my predictions are. And most of the time, I'm usually 100% right. <laughs> no, not really. But sometimes I am. And uh, still, we got to play a disclaimer that tells you what exactly is going on right after this. So with that, let's roll the disclaimer. Remember, Thriller Podcast does not give financial advice. He cannot tell the future. Even if he thinks can, he is just some dude trying to save the world one Satoshi at a time. All right, it's time for a coin talk. Probably the most exciting part of your day, I would imagine probably is. Now, there's a lot of uh, sentiment out there. People are scared. Even a magic poop cannon of TradingView. His charts are super bearish. And a lot of people are left wondering. There's nothing really out there that shows why it should have sold off. And you have crypto Reddit with the memes again. <laughs> and then you have crypto Twitter talking about libertarianism and how it affects the market. serious fuck is going on out there <laughs> it's a thriller baby and we're going down to 7k <laughs> hello cheap bitcoin and investing it in bitcoin <laughs> you see car this is why no one takes you seriously anymore this is why no one takes you seriously car this is why this is why <laughs> this is why all of this is why. Okay, seriously, let's look at the coin market cap. Uh, looks like it's at $212 billion. That's right, $212 billy. That's right, we got Bitcoin dominance at uh, 68%. Looking stellar out there, Bitcoin. Then we have a Bitcoin currently priced right now at $8,000. You got Ethereum at $165. XRP. Bankers coin, 24 cents. We got Bitcoin Cash, and that's right, $213. And Litecoin at 54 buckaroos. Yeah, I mean, this whole market's red. Let's let's stop denying the facts, car. This whole market's red. What's your outlook? Because Bitcoin poop cannon <laughs> has some serious outlooks. What is your, your outlook? <laughs> and his name's Magic Poop Cannon. Oh, man. These, these are why, see, you see, the thing about these people who make all these bearish claims is they hide behind an avatar. So they have no, they can get crap wrong. And that's why it's called Magic Poop Cannon. Anyways, this guy's predicting, this is hilarious. He's predicting 3K Bitcoin. Imagine that. Imagine Bitcoin going down at 3K just because this guy is 100% bearish all the time. And the reason, the reason most of these people out there are bearish is because most of the time, Bitcoin's going down. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, like 75% of the time, Bitcoin's going down. It only really goes up about 25% of the time. And usually when it goes up, eh, everybody knows it's going up, right? I think in this, I think we really look at the market the way it is, at least how I look at everything. I'm zooming out, man. Like, I'm truly zooming out. 
I acknowledge that back just got released. Yes, it was kind of a, you know, slow start, but still a nice little pillar that we have here on our side going forward, I would say. Right. Second of all, I would say that right now I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Why tomorrow, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why tomorrow I'm looking forward to it. I'm wondering if the CME futures expiring tomorrow is going to have an effect on the market. Seriously. Like, I'm seriously considering that that's a possibility for tomorrow. And then after that, I'm looking at the end of the quarter on Monday. And I'm looking at those two things because I'm wondering, hey, you know, for the most part, we have some really big key financial investors out there into Bitcoin. I'm sure they need to take profits for the quarter, right? You have companies out there. We have some balance sheets to take care of, ladies and gentlemen, not to mention the entire world economy is like plummeting, right? Right. You have uh, the Fed releasing repo, right? Repurchase money back into banks. I mean, look at all of what's going on out there. Take a macro approach to what's going on, not just a crypto approach. And you'll see all the signs pointing to why the market is the way it is. I am seriously waiting for tomorrow. I want to see what the 27th looks like. And then after that, I want to see what the end of the quarter looks like on the 30th. If we just go into the weekend and it's continuously red and we still see 7K and then, you know, maybe 6K and who knows, 5K or whatever. If that happens over the weekend, then, yeah, it's pretty bad. But I, I don't see that happening. I really don't see that happening. I'd be very shocked. I know there's a lot of people out there that are looking at charts and, and charts are a good way to kind of understand where the market has been. But to try to predict something, I mean, one way or another, we just need more data. And the more time we have in this market, the more data we'll collect. But currently right now, we had been saying it for the longest time, myself included, that if we went down past 9,100, 9,200, then at that point, we're going to retest this 200-day moving average. And that's what we're doing. So it's, it's, it's not a surprise, nothing surprising here. Now, if it fell to 3K overnight, would that be surprising? Absolutely. <laughs> if magic poop cannon's right and we, we get down to 3K again, well then, crap. Yeah, that's surprising. But even then, that would be shocking. Bitcoin doesn't work like that. I mean, I mean, it can, but it's not likely to do that. This time right now that we're in is really just about accumulating more Bitcoin for this next big run. And that's what I'm doing. I mean, dollar cost averaging in every week is a good way to do that. You know, skipping some lunches during the week and buying Bitcoin or buying some other crypto assets is a good way to do that. Today, I picked up some more Bitcoin, more Ethereum. I mean, just because like, when am I going to be able to get such cheap amounts of Bitcoin like this? I don't mind buying at these prices because I'm going to be buying anyway. Truly knowing a good time kind of scale for when you are looking to exit out, right? But if you're somebody like me who's in this for the long haul, that's not looking to exit out anytime soon, <laughs> not this decade <laughs> especially, um, then you're, you're going to be buying at these, at these prices. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. You know, I hate to be the guy who uh, tries to, you know, always, uh, you know, beat a uh, positive um drum but we don't have enough of those people out there <laughs> there's, there's enough bearish people out there right with some of the biggest audiences in the space and most of the people listen to them because 
you know, 75% of the time they're right because the market is always going down. <laughs> and it's just those 25% that it's not. And um, me personally, I'm looking forward tomorrow. I want to see what that looks like with the CME futures expiring. We'll see what that looks like. If we see, if I see us go back up to 9K, you know, then I'm like, oh, okay, we're actually doing pretty good. And then if we retest 10K over the weekend, well then, wow, that was fast. And as quickly as we turn bullish, we'll turn, well, <laughs> as quickly as we turn bearish, we'll turn bullish. Yeah, that's just the way it is. Okay, with that, let's get into the main topic. And that's right. Today we are talking inside protocol chain link. Now, this is probably the most requested. Uh, well, no, that's a lie. It's not the most requested. <laughs> that was decred. But this is probably like the third most requested uh, inside protocol that I re received uh, people just want to know about uh, Chainlink. They want my take on it. Uh, well, today you're going to get it. You know, the good and the bad, right? We're going to talk all about it. We're going to discuss what's underlining it all, what kind of protocols they're using, and what exactly is an Oracle and how it pertains to the blockchain. Yeah, we're diving into it. Main topic, starting now. Green feet 
I will say right now, none of this is financial advice. If you're gonna invest in Chainlink, do so. At your own risk, not mine. And above all else, do your own research. Don't trust me, don't trust me. I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. All right, I think that's it. I guess now we can begin. The Chainlink network provides reliable, tamper-proof inputs and outputs for complex smart contracts on any blockchain. Building a truly valuable smart contract requires the use of multiple inputs to provide contractual performance, as well as multiple outputs to affect outside systems and send or receive payment to complete the smart contract. Chainlink provides smart contracts with these inputs and outputs that need to reach its full potential. Smart contracts require secure middleware to connect them to real-world data. This external data will trigger the contract, creating the need for its high reliability. Chainlink's decentralized Oracle network provides the same security guarantees as smart contracts themselves by allowing multiple Chainlinks to evaluate the same data before it becomes a trigger. Any one point of failure gets eliminated and the overall value of a smart contract that is highly secure, reliable, and trustworthy is maintained. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about uh, oracles and uh, the solving of a very specific problem for smart contracts. Uh, the problem is that smart contracts on networks like Ethereum and all its different variants, including you know various private variants, public variants, uh, they cannot speak with data. So if, if a smart contract can't talk to a data source, then it can't know that something happened in the, out in the real world. And if smart contracts can't know that a contractual event occurred, then that smart contract can't be built. So if, if you want to make an insurance contract or some kind of fi financial product that relies on market data, or you want to make something for trade finance where you re rely on shipment, shipment data, or you want to make any of the other very interesting various smart contracts that require an external proof of performance, 
that they need to know that something happened out in the real world in order to exist at all. Um, until you solve what's called the Oracle problem, you can't get that data to the contract. What this effectively does is it makes it so that the contracts that can be built on Ethereum and a private variants or the public variants of Ethereum, the thing, the thing that this means is that the contracts you can build on Ethereum today are tokenization contracts. You can build tokenization contracts because those are the functions you have out of the box. You have the ability to make tokens, move around private keys, and that's what you can do. Um, but you cannot, until you solve this smart contract connectivity problem or Oracle problem, connect to sources of information that prove something has happened. And that, um, that's greatly limiting for what, what this technology can do, in our opinion. Now, just, just to put in context what, what could happen if this problem was properly solved, we can look at um, how, you know, how the space has evolved and how it might evolve if this problem gets solved. So the way smart contracts have evolved is they've gone, from, they've gone through a few stages. One of the first stages was going from you know, multi-signature signing in something like Bitcoin. That was considered the smart contract in something like 2013. And then you went to protocol slash opcode based smart contracts where you had to speak directly with a protocol developer in order to make any type of new contract. So this means you, you couldn't write your own contract code. You had to go to a developer that made the protocol. You had to tell them, I want a new smart contract in your protocol as part of your protocol. And then I need to engage in a three-month cycle, and then another three-month testing cycle, another three-month release cycle, and maybe I'll have the smart contract I need in you know, anywhere from three to nine months. Now, what, what Ethereum did that, that, was that is genuinely very impressive and has moved the space forward to a very substantial degree is it took us from these protocol-opcode-based smart contracts to these scriptable contracts. Now that was a huge leap forward in features, it was a huge leap forward in what people could do, what developers could build, essentially. The, the roadblock of, I want my core smart contract code to do X, went from, I need to talk to a protocol developer, to, I need to sit down and either copy-paste somebody else's contract code or write my own in a week. And that has created this like explosion of features and use cases and value, mainly focused around tokens. So that was a huge, huge leap forward, which Ethereum has done, um, done, a, done a great job at moving forward, initiating, moving forward, and you know, they deserve a lot of, a lot of credit for that. The, the next <coughs> stage, which logically makes, makes sense to us, is a stage where you have these scriptable smart contracts where people can make whatever smart contract they want. They can code whatever core operations they want to represent their application. And now, the scriptable smart contracts can also interface with relevant events, essentially. They can interface with relevant data input events that prove that something happened in the real world. They can interface with relevant payment events, uh, such as payments to somebody's bank account or payments on another chain. And this uh, ability for this scriptable contract, which anybody can write to do whatever they want it to do, and then the ability to get that scriptable contract beyond tokens and into the world of, I'm reacting to market data, I'm reacting to an IoT device that tells me something happened relative to insurance, something happened relative to shipment, and then being able to also affect things in the real world, 
opens up once again an entire, an, an entire huge massive collection of capabilities for developers to build more. And I, we already know they're doing this, and we're, we're, what, our, what our project focuses on is solving this problem. So our, the entire goal of Chainlink is to solve the problem of how, does, how, do we get, how, do we, how do we go from scriptable contracts focused on tokens to scriptable contracts that can do everything else, that can, you know, that can do things in the securities industry and in trade finance and insurance and whatever, whatever, whatever you want them to do, they can now do. Um, and this is, so this is what we're focused on. Essentially, the solution to this is a blockchain middleware. So it's something that sits between the off-chain world and the on-chain world for both the transmission of data into the contract, the transmission of commands from the contract to payment systems, to various, various other services that it wants to make an effect on, and the ability for the contract to affect changes in other chains. Essentially, all of this is enabled by what's called a block, you know, technically called a blockchain middleware, also known as an oracle, um, and we call it a chain link, and that's that's what we work on. Chainlink's core functional objective is to bridge two environments, on-chain and off-chain. On-chain architecture is an Oracle service, or Chainlink nodes, which return replies to data requests or queries made by or on behalf of a user contract, which the Chainlink's team refers to as requesting contracts and denote by user-sc. Now, Chainlink's on-chain interface to requesting contracts is itself an on-chain contract that Chainlink team denotes by Chainlink-SC. Behind Chainlink-SC, Chainlink has an on-chain component consisting of three main contracts. A reputation contract, an order matching contract, and an aggregating contract. Now, if we look at their off-chain architecture, we can see that Chainlink will initially be built on Ethereum, but the Chainlink team intends for it to support all leading smart contract networks for both off-chain and cross-chain interactions. In both its on- and off-chain versions, Chainlink has been designed with modularity in mind, meaning every piece of the Chainlink system is solely upgradable so that different components can be replaced as better techniques and competing implementations as they arise. Now, these Chainlink nodes independently harvest responses to off-chain requests, but they are powered by the standard open source core implementation, which handles standard blockchain interaction, scheduling and connecting with common external resources. Chainlink nodes have already been deployed alongside both public blockchains and private networks in enterprise settings, enabling the nodes to run in a decentralized manner is the main motivation for the Chainlink network. Um, the, the key point is reliability. <clears throat> the reason that reliability is the key point when it comes to oracles and blockchain middleware, reliability, security, is that this is the key feature of a smart contract. So the key feature of a smart contract 
is, is its ability to provide the guarantee that a state change will happen. If a smart contract gets an input, such as a signature, let's say it's a Bitcoin multi-sig, the Bitcoin will be transferred in, in the UTXO model out to the relevant addresses, right? That's unique. There's no other form of digital agreement that does that. And then if you, if you move that on down to, to more complex contracts, like the Ethereum smart contract, they, provide the they, they supposedly provide the same guarantee of, I have extremely reliable digital agreement. Now, if we want extremely reliable digital agreement that has this expanded set of connectivity features in order for us to build more interesting, more useful, decentralized applications, smart contract applications, whatever you want to call them, if, if we want this, and if we want this and we want it to actually be something people put value into, we also need to, guarantee, to provide a similar guarantee, right? So now the guarantee expands beyond the contract and it expands to the systems that are included in generating this externally connected, uh, externally triggered contract, right? So this is, this is a fundamental core idea where it's, it's based on the simple fact that, you know, that I've, I've tested in practice, or a lot of other people that build these more connected contracts have tested in practice, in that nobody cares and nobody wants to put value into a contract that's partially secure. Nobody really, nobody will put value into a contract that's secure in like the middle stage, but it isn't secure at some other stage. If somebody's going to put hundreds of millions, eventually billions of dollars into this deterministic, um, highly, a very difficult to roll back uh, form of digital agreement, it needs to be secure and reliable. And, and that's, just, that's just the simple fact of, of, of what these contracts need to deliver in order to be useful, in order for people to put value. So the end-to-end the, the, the -end reliability is very important. And that's essentially the place where Chainlink seeks to excel. Chainlink is a collection of approaches that seeks to provide contracts with this reliability through, you know, through a, a community of oracles that people can select multiple oracles or one oracle, however many they want to select. But we'll, we'll get into that. Essentially, th this is a very important idea. Uh, and if you're building your smart contract, you should, you should ask yourself, I, I know that my contract is reliable because I believe that the Ethereum you know, network is reliable. How do I know that my contract is reliably triggered? Right? How do I know this isn't a point of failure? You as developers and the people that are building something that's going to get value put into it um, should, in, in this space, should, should take that point of view. Because if you build something that's not secure, you know, it could create a problem. So you should, this is kind of you looking ahead to, to, to see that there won't be a problem. Uh, one way not to do this, in our opinion, one of the, the, I mean, the most logical, intuitive, initial idea would be, okay, I'll just have an oracle and there'll be a single oracle somewhere and it'll be run by somebody and it'll be closed source and I'll just hope for the best and I'll just send it into some, some oracle somewhere run by, I don't know, five people, right? And then they'll trigger my contract and it'll all be great. Uh, this, this approach in and of itself is, is, is very flawed because it, it goes against the security model and the logic of our space, right? The logic of our space is, I trust the contract state change because it's computed on multiple nodes, it's computed on, on a network of nodes, and this decentralization or essentially high level of redundancy provides me this guarantee. And then 
when I expand the features of the function of the contract out to how do we trigger it reliably, I suddenly forget this idea. Forgetting this idea isn't a good idea. You should really just stick with this decentralization, high redundancy equal is the security model idea. Um, so that's that's why a central or centralized oracle without any additional guarantees is highly problematic in our opinion. Um, we've run a centralized oracle for years. It's not something we think can provide the guarantees that people would look at an end-to-end -end smart contract setup and say, yes, you know that I'll put a hundred million dollars into that. Doesn't doesn't seem so likely. The more useful security model that isn't in line with the model of our space is one where you have decentralized computation doing the state change, and then you have a decentralized oracle network, uh, which essentially means that you've applied decentralization to this oracle mechanism. You have the capacity as a developer to select a multitude of oracles and to pay for decentralization on the level of this mechanism. So now you pay for decentralization for the state change because you believe in the security model of decentralization. You pay for decentralization at the level of the oracle because you believe in, in the security model of decentralization. Right? That's that's the, the basic foundation that Chainlink is, 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 is more or less built on. And then after you've decentralized the Oracle network level, or decentralized the Oracle level or the middleware level, you can then move on to decentralizing subsequent layers. So that means data feeds. So once you have multiple Oracles, you can then talk to multiple discrete data feeds if you want to decentralize that, la that layer. Um, that's a separate question, but you know, the, the first step is you, you essentially, in, in terms of security, you continue to move out from, from, from the contract to determine what you can make secure. Um, as, a, as a quick example, just to, to put this into, into a clearer perspective, let's say you had a contract where something was shipped and you wanted to make sure it arrived because your contract is highly deterministic and highly efficient and it's very hard to roll it back and it doesn't have a rollback and you know, nobody is gonna wanna roll it back, it's gonna be very difficult. You, you don't have like a three day period waiting to do something. It's this super efficient, super deterministic, super great contract, right? So if it's so super great and efficient and deterministic and immutable, you, you might want to make sure that what, what, what it relies on actually happened. In this example, that's, you know, there's two sources of data about a shipment, and now your contract knows, you know, as an initial key source, and then maybe as a backup piece of proof about something happening in terms of a delivery. And then let's say your contract wants to pay. You know, let's say your contract wants to pay $100 for this delivery or a million dollars or a billion dollars. And now it needs to know market data. So now the, the payment is determined by this market data that's delivered to the contract, in our case, through multiple sources and multiple uh, individual nodes. This, is, this costs more, but this creates more reliability. And it's an important point around if I want my contract to then pay out in you know, Bitcoin or Zcash or something else, um, how do I know how much Bitcoin it sends? How much is $100 of Bitcoin, $1,000 of Bitcoin, a $1 billion of Bitcoin? Um, I need to know this, and I need to know it reliably. So at the, at the core, this is, this is the, the approach that Chainlink seeks to provide to the, to the, you know, the public chain kind of open source community. Um, the, the second piece of, of Chainlink, well, not the second piece, like and an, another very important thing that Chainlink does and that we're always eager to hear feedback on and, 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 and think about how, how it can be more helpful is the ability to have pre-made um, pre inputs. So what a pre-made, uh, or pre-made oracles, pre-made pre inputs and outputs. 
what a pre-made input and output is, is the ability, uh, is essentially an, an API that's had a specific chain link wrapped around it and now has a specific contract on chain that represents that resource, right? So what we have is we have these collections of, you know, now we have tens working on hundreds and, you know, eventually probably thousands we'll have um, of, these, of these discrete contracts on chain and each discrete contract represents a specific off-chain resource. So each, each discrete contract can represent, you know, market data, you can have a discrete contract for weather data, and now what you can have is you can have contracts that you can have a, a collection of building blocks. You can essentially have a collection of inputs and outputs that, that are pre-made inputs and outputs. So now, now a smart contract developer can build at the velocity of a web developer, right? The velocity at which a web developer builds is, you know, I write my core code. You know, let's say I'm making the, the, the Uber application. I write my core Uber code in a week or two uh, for the MVP, and then I go out and I get a GPS API, I get an SMS API, and I get a payments API. And I have my Uber MVP. And I have it working, right? And I have it doing what it needs to do. In smart contract world right now, the velocity of a developer to build such an externally connected application, something like that, would, is, is extremely low. It's, it's probably orders of magnitudes lower than that. And the way to get to the same velocity, the way to get to the same speed of creating interesting, useful things, and then even more importantly, probably iterating on, you know, adding more inputs, removing inputs, ch changing inputs, um, is, is if there's pre-made on-chain contracts that represent specific resources. So now you can have a requesting contract. It, you take code snippets from, that represent four or five other contracts, those contracts, code snippets go into the requesting contract, and that's it. Just like APIs now, literally in a matter of minutes, uh, a smart contract developer has connectivity to all the inputs that he needs, and he's able, he's able to get his application working. He doesn't need to figure out the API. He, he, and in Chainlink's case, he has a substantial amount of information about why a specific oracle is a good oracle. So the question of why am I relying on this oracle is answered, and the question of what input I'm using is, is answered. And so now the velocity of development has, has rapidly, rapidly increased from, from months to, to days or weeks. Um, so yeah, that's another, another big piece. Chainlink also has, has other, other, other pieces to it, uh, but I think the most useful, you know, how do I use a decentralized Oracle to make a highly reliable input? How do I make a highly reliable end-to-end -end contract? And then the second question is, what specific inputs or outputs uh, do I really want as a developer? What specific inputs or outputs should there be a pre-made chain link for so that I can, you know, I can reliably use that input and output and I can even show other people very clearly, here's my core code, here's the contract responsible for delivering this data, here's another contract responsible for doing payments somewhere, and here's my, here's my application. Chainlink has released a promising initial mainnet implementation, and they are executing against a roadmap that has the potential to fulfill this vision of a robust decentralized Oracle network. Now, their initial mainnet implementation is an achievement in and of itself. 
It is an audited Oracle software library, a set of team verified node operators, and a variety of data feeds for developers to choose from. We hope in future iterations, aggregation contracts will allow programmatic selection of nodes and data feeds for each specific need, or as they would say, defined as a service agreement in the Chainlink protocol. Now these node operators will build meaningful reputation based on historical SAs and Town Crier will provide secure off-chain computation. As Chainlink transactions from a software library to a stateful network, marquee customers will begin to outsource Oracle architecture and Chainlink will slowly become a piece of middleware blockchain utilized by most smart contracts of sufficient value and complexity. This is what we hope will be Chainlink's future. So this is, this is like scratching the surface of how a model like this could look, right? One, one part of the model is all of this data. And I guess that that's what I didn't really get into. In this slide, you see us retaining a lot of data about exactly what's happening, when it's happening, how many confirmations, how successfully this node operator performed their commitment, right? And, and here what you see is you see the kind of a model of how the aggregate data of that node operator performing that, that, that commit, those commitments to multiple nodes, uh, to multiple contracts, to multiple users, could add up in this web of trust model, which is, a very, which is basically the functioning model for like the most secure form of messaging. Um, so yeah, basically, um, I think this is how this is going to evolve. I, I, th I think what's going to happen is we, we, we are in the process of vetting a large amount of candidates, and, and we do apologize if, you know, there's, there, there, if we haven't gotten to, to vetting you yet. Um, we, we have a huge backlog of, of folks, and we're, we're kind of scaling up that team and, and our integrations team, and we're just doing our best to kind of keep up. Um, but we think what's going to happen is there's going to be more high-quality node operators. They're going to be able to represent more and more information about why they're a good node operator. And that'll allow you to intelligently reason about how do I combine those node operators into an Oracle network that I actually want to trigger my contract with. And it won't be some like hand wavy like, I don't know who the node operators and I don't know who, what the data sources they use are and I don't know what infrastructure they run and they have no deposit, but you should just, you know, have them trigger a billion dollars and you should just use one. That's what you should do. I don't know. I, I, this, this, is, this, this is the dynamic we want to get away from. We want to get towards the dynamic of, um, just like you show people Ethereum and you say, we use Ethereum, it's reliable. You should be able to show people an Oracle network and say, here's my Oracle network of seven node operators. Here's why you should trust each of them. Here's why you should trust them in aggregate. Um, here's the commitments they've made. Uh, here's the infrastructure they use. Here's, here's, here's the other systems they use, right? This is why you should trust this system to trigger this, uh, you know, this highly reliable contract we're, we're involved with, you and me. That, that to me seems like the, um, that's the type of contract I want to participate in. Like if somebody were to sit, you know, convince me of like, enter into this contract with me, that is the level of detail that I would want if I could get it. 
uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a number of dynamics and this is kind of just scratching the surface. Um, I just wanted to kind of put this together and, you know, put it, put it in front of you folks. I know a lot of you are really involved and smart and, you know, I'd thrilled to talk about it after, and, you know, you can send us emails and chat more and, but this is kind of scratching the surface of what I think we're really trying to achieve. What, what we're really trying to achieve is um, decentralization that's informed and, and security that's um, the ability to purchase security in an informed way. I, I don't know if that's clear. I know I'm, I seem to be repeating myself, but I just, this is, it's, it's not the clearest kind of formulation yet maybe, but you know, the ability for people to purchase security in a way that they, they know that if they add two more nodes, they get that much more, this much more security, that clarity um, I think it's very useful. I was really impressed with understanding how Chainlink, the project, and the Oracle of nodes function as a decentralized network. Thinking about blockchain as a middleware to the rest of the ecosystem is an incredible new approach to how projects can now contribute to Web3. I think it's pretty promising to see that the initial mainnet implementation of Chainlink is already being rolled out as version one. Uh, to think that uh, something as simple as aggregation contracts uh, can allow the selection of nodes and data feeds to each to meet each specific need is just tremendous uh, in a span of uh, what two years. Um, one of the main things that kind of scares me about all of this is how fast we're going. Uh, it's pretty phenomenal. Sergey Nazarov, the CEO of Chainlink, has an incredible mind. Uh, how he looks at the world of blockchain and crypto and where the ecosystem is right now and where he sees it going is uh, is unlike any other in this space, I would say. The fact that he's at the helm is a good thing. The only real question left is, can they do it? I think if you ask most people in this space, uh, they would tell you that the decentralized nature of these Oracle nodes is gonna be the one kind of, you know, red herring to it all. Uh, if they aren't successful doing that, that's gonna be one of the main reasons to FUD on Chainlink, <laughs> as it would say. Uh, if they are capable of doing it, then people will shut up. And ultimately, I think the fact that they're taking an every blockchain approach is a good thing. And ultimately, that'll be the driving force of the entire project is integrating everybody. And that's Inside Protocol, Chainlink. you guys enjoyed the show. I really appreciate everybody sending in the request to do an inside protocol on Chainlink. 
I learned a ton and there's a lot more we didn't even cover. Uh, this would probably take two episodes uh, to, to cover everything. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that we got the main importance of what Chainlink is and how it functions and why it's important and where it's headed in the future. I think we did that. With that, let's get on to the end of the show. is Dunsies. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you. Like I said, if you want to join our Thriller Crypto newsletter, go ahead and sign up. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. But if you want to join our subscription where you get access to more Thriller Crypto every week, 
Yeah, it's like seven bucks. It's like a, a ice cream latte at Starbucks or something. Who knows? Or you can check out our past inside protocols at thrillerx.com. Bye, Bitcoin. Save the world. See you next time. This is the end of the show. Satoshi at a time.